Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and I'm flying solo today as my co-host, Charlene Chang, is taking the week off to celebrate her birthday. Happy birthday, Charlene. I got an email yesterday from someone who mentioned that they were disappointed that Stacey Abrams hadn't gotten a position yet. She didn't win the governor's race 2018. She passed on the going for the Senate race. She didn't take a job in the Biden administration. And so I sent this person back a long, long email about my reflections on candidates in office. And I backed dozens, probably hundreds of candidates over the past 20 plus years. And then also writing a book around this political moment really put things in historical perspective, really from you know, 1865 into the Civil War to today. And so we've done a lot of looking back and looking forward. And even the 2020 elections really represented the culmination of 10 years of work in Georgia and Arizona and other places. And it's got me looking forward 10 years in that context and really reflecting like, what is the what is the end goal? What is the point of a lot of all the frenetic and seemingly urgent campaign activity and getting these different positions? And what are all these people doing? We're sending all these urgent emails about, you know, need money this very second. What are they really doing? And how are they making the world better beyond this, them as an individual getting a position or a title? And so what I was telling this person is that in my view, Stacey has done more to save democracy, defeat fascism and white nationalism, and advance the cause of justice and equality than almost any person who holds any elected office in the country, winning the seats in Georgia, winning the presidential, flipping the Senate. My, the title of the Georgia chapter of my book is called Georgia. That's not one we expected, which is what Biden said on election night. And so what I, what I shared with this person is that as I was looking back and all the candidates I supported, two people have stood out because of what they were doing to make real and meaningful change. People who embodied what James Baldwin wrote about playwright Lorraine Hansberry, author of A Raisin in the Sun. He described Hansberry as a person who was characterized by, quote, strength dictated by absolutely impersonal ambition. She was not trying to, quote, make it. She was trying to keep the faith. And of the two people who stand out to me, one is obviously Stacey Abrams. The other person is Michael Tubbs, who as much as, if not more than any person in this country, is working to end poverty and who's already done a great deal in that regard and what we'll get into in the podcast today. So I'm delighted to welcome back to the podcast, the former mayor of Stockton and the founder of the new organization End Poverty in California, Michael Tubbs. Welcome back to the pod and thanks for joining us. Uh, first of all, no pressure. <laughs> uh, appreciate the, the kind words as always and always good to be in conversation with you. Thanks for having me. So for our listeners who may not know who Michael is, I uh, highly encourage you to listen to the episode of the podcast we did with him and his wife, Anna, uh, that came out back in July of 2020, and we'll link to it in the show notes. And just in terms of a quick formal bio, at the age of 26, Michael became the youngest mayor of any major city in American history and the first African-American mayor of Stockton, California. He initiated a Stockton Scholars Program, moved more than $20 million so that high school students could have the opportunity to go to college. And as mayor, he launched the Stockton Economic Empowerment Demonstration, the nation's first ever mayor-led guaranteed income pilot which was, grows out of the work of what Martin Luther King called for. And we'll get into that when we talk about it in terms of a guaranteed income in his last book, Where Do We Go From Here? Uh, Michael then parlayed that effort and took it national to creating Mayors for Guaranteed Income, 
a coalition of over 30 mayors, which advocates for an income floor for all Americans. And he now serves as the special advisor to Governor Gavin Newsom for economic mobility. And this most recent initiative, End Poverty in California, is a nonprofit that advocates for statewide policies that will reduce the racial wealth gap. So first, to get us caught up, right? So it's a lot's happened in the past two years since you were you were back on the pod. Mayoral race came and went. You added a new member to your family. You moved. Do you want to catch us up on where you are at and what the transition that you've made in the past couple of years? Yeah, yeah. Well, first, we're now at 72 mayors as part of Marriage Guaranteed Income. Oh, wow. 25 pilots. And I began working with counties. Like LA County was just announced with the leadership of Chairwoman Holly Mitchell at the Board of Supervisors, $1,000 for 1,000 people for three years with government money. So it's been great to see sort of how the seed actually germinated is now bringing forth much fruit. So since I lost re-election, my wife and I relocated to Southern California. We live in Los Angeles now in South LA. And that's fascinating because LA is literally the epicenter of guaranteed income. Two Hmm. of the three largest basic income pilots are in LA County and LA City. And myself and my team are working very closely with um, Supervisor Mitchell and Mayor Garcetti's team on that, but also Long Beach, Compton, and these other cities around it are all doing, West Hollywood are all doing basic income programs. And LA also has a county poverty alleviation initiative that we're helping and supporting with Epic and Mirrors for Guaranteed Income. So I didn't know all this was going to happen in LA when we moved here, but it's the right place to be. I released a book on November 17th of last year called The Deeper the Roots. And it's different from most political memoirs. It's not about using my story to show that the American dream is working or that Mm -hmm. the status quo is great. But it really uses my story to show all the ways in which policy fails people and all the ways in which we have to do more work to become a more perfect union. And then we welcomed our daughter, um, baby Nehemiah, on August 30th. So she's six months. So it's wow. been a really busy um, year and some change. Um, wow. All good things. And really leaning into this work around ending poverty in California. Really leaning in into this work of narrative change and storytelling and changing the story we tell about poverty. Because I'm convinced after my eight years in office that policy change only happens as far as the political imagination of the people are willing to go. Mm-hmm. And that imagination is shaped through stories and culture and, and what people see. And the last thing I'll say is last year during the May revise and my role with the governor was able to work with his team to put a billion dollars in for childhood savings accounts. Now every child who is in a public school in first grade gets a college saving account. So when they graduate high school, it accrues interest. Well, let's just back up for a second. I want to, I want to get into that in one, <laughs> in, in one second. So just in terms of framing up, so I want to get into the you know, origins and kind of the origin story in terms of your own involvement and leadership and engagement with this whole universal basic income issue, right? And just, I mean, it's just, yeah. I mean, I've, I've texted you periodically around it, you know, both it's, I mean, a lot of people who are, you know, uh, children of the civil rights movement, children, grandchildren of the civil rights movement, look to King and look to King's last book, right? On where we go from mm-hmm. here. And he talks in there about a guaranteed income, talks about the best way to eliminate poverty is to eliminate poverty <laughs> directly, right? <laughs> And so I think that is kind of laid down the marker for a lot of people. It obviously didn't become policy. And then it's just, you know, just reflecting on really this course of you know, my own lifetime, we've gone from a war on poverty launched, um, you know, really by the civil rights movement, but championed by the president, Lyndon Johnson um, in the 60s, which did in fact cut poverty in half. There's this, n- this narrative that we can't make any impact on poverty to a war on the poor. 
when I was in you know, college, I came of age, that was, um, you know, the era of Ronald Reagan. And it's I, there's this uh, quote that James Baldwin had about Reagan. And he says, what I really found unspeakable about Reagan, particularly when he was governor, what I really found unspeakable about the man was his contempt, his brutal contempt for the poor. And then Reagan took that and he ran for president on it, talking about welfare queens and people cheese. So he really changed much of the public conception about the imperative of addressing poverty to going to blaming poor people for being poor, right? And I like to actually turn that on people like Ben Carson. People talk about, well, my mom grew up poor, but she had a lot of discipline and blah, blah, blah. And I like to push them be like, well, why was your mom poor in the first place, right? Was she lazy, right? Or is this like a legacy <laughs> of slavery and institutional discrimination? So not a lot of people in politics gravitate towards championing poverty as their issue and as their you know signature focus and so what led you to be wanting to move that as uh, something you were going to focus on yeah well honestly you mentioned ben carson's example it just stems from personal experience just mm. growing up in poverty and i remember going to stanford and hearing people talk about poor people but it did not register with the people i grew up with like mm-hmm. i was like who are they talking about like i literally was so confused i had no idea People felt that way about people that didn't have money. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, I was like, you think everyone's poor because they're lazy? I just, it, was, it was just so dumb to me. Mm-hmm. And then I recognized that that's a widespread belief, particularly among those in power. Yeah. And sometimes regardless of party, right? Like we saw Joe Manchin recently with the child tax credit. Mm-hmm. So in college, I really thought that, hmm. And as a spiritual person, I thought, well, may God, maybe I was able to get to a place like Stanford to provide some perspective about how the vast majority of people in this country actually live and their hopes and aspirations and their ability and, and, and merit. And then the second thing is while at college, I learned about policy. I learned about redlining. I learned about structural racism. I learned about disparate outcomes being predictable choices of predictable based on policy outcomes. I learned about school funding formulas, where if you live in a rich neighborhood, your school gets more money than if you live in a poor neighborhood. Like these fundamental injustices. And I was like, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, like that's why my city and my neighborhood looked this way. It wasn't because we all decided we wanted to live in a food desert or we all decided we didn't want banks and went check cashing places. It's by design. And that I've been on fire about that ever since. And, and part of it, particularly when I was mayor, and even more so now that I'm not, I just realized that so many of our issues, poverty is at the root. Poverty is the cause for a lot of the issues we have. And as we saw with COVID-19, poverty makes us really weak to respond to any pandemic, to any disruption, to any um, disturbance. And unfortunately, in this generation, we live in a time of pandemics whether it's climate or health, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And our foundation is so weak because we have so many people. In the best of times, half of us were one paycheck away, one $500 emergency away from financial ruin. That's a lot of people. So now I'm on fire for it because I think in, in, in ending poverty lies really the salvation of our democracy. Like I mm-hmm. just don't see a hundred year timeline where wealth is continuing to strata. Like that doesn't end well. There's not one example of an empire in history where it ends well with wealth to be hoarded at the top and to have such a discrepancy and so much poverty and disruption. Like at some point, there's going to be a ten- some tension. So I-, I view my work in terms of like just saving democracy mm-hmm. and-, and saving mm-hmm. our society. Yeah. Um, I just think the-, think the logical end is not one I want myself or my children or my children's children to see. 
Right. My mom went to uh, Central State University, a black college in Pennsylvania. And the president for a while was a uh, guy named Arthur Thomas. He was this incredible speaker. And I always, we used to, we used to gather around, just listen to his speeches and whatnot. So I never forget his giving this speech. He's talking about how a lot of black folks distance themselves from poor people in poverty. He says, um, the only difference between a middle-class black person and a poor black person is one house payment and two car notes. <laughs> But you had mentioned something about the the, the suggestion. I want to go spend a second on the your reflections on the. I mean, so I thought you are so very young man. You actually have a long history in electoral politics now um, <laughs> at this young age. So, and kind of in the context of thinking about saying, you know, Stacey's position and ambition and whatnot. And so, I'm just curious that this juncture, as you have a chance to reflect, looking back and looking forward, right? So now you're come a parent in the past few years of a new child, so you can't think about the future. You worked in the White House when you were at Stanford. You had all these, all the different opportunities of things that of, of greater like prestige and, you know, frankly, wealth and whatnot. And I remember our very first conversation when we were at, we were in Casa Zapata at Stanford um, back in 2011 or 12. Wow. And you were trying to decide what route you should go. Should you go back to Stockton? Should you run for, you know, city council or should you do something else? And there aren't a lot of people from Stanford who go to a city like Stockton to run up for city council. It's not prestigious. It's not, you know, the kind of glory that gets attached to other positions. So say a little bit about why you did that and then how you reflect back on that now, having done that work for the years that you were in, in city government in Stockton. Yeah. Wow. It does seem so long ago. So in college, I really was trying to figure out, I, I had a real sense of survivor's guilt. And so much of it was trying to figure out, okay, what? What's all this for? Like all this opportunity, all this access, all these accolades. It can't just be for me to be comfortable. Right? Mm-hmm. Like, that just can't be what it's for. And then my cousin was murdered while I was working in the White House mm-hmm. in that juxtaposition of being like at this, the heart of power in mm-hmm. this country and feeling so powerless to help my family. <laughs> and I just did that feeling that that dissonance really drove me to dig deep. And I recognize that sort of running for city council wasn't, it's, it's interesting now, Steve, because now everyone's running for like Congress and stuff as their right. first office. Or, yep. like, I'm like, so I tell people, you know, I'm real because I was doing this before there was a squad, before, there was no template. There was, mm-hmm. there weren't a bunch of, there was, like, I don't, can't, I can't think of anyone who was thinking of running for office. At, right. at, AOC at, came out and met with you, right? As yeah. she was done her doing her campaign. Yeah. So I, I we ran for city council. Small position, small city, and had no idea the impact we would be able to make and the conversations we would even be had, mm-hmm. even just as a city council person, right? Yeah. And, but the idea was that, to your point of your intro, it was so motivated by a sense of purpose and a sense of calling and a sense of, um, this is what I'm supposed to do. And that just made the grind of the campaign possible because mm-hmm. it, it, the city had just declared bankruptcy. Uh, we have more murders per capita than any other city in the country at the time. Um, so it just felt like this, it felt like a line, like this is what I was supposed to do. But it never felt like I was a politician or I was going to be a politician. It was really about, okay, I'm going to lead. I'm, I'm, this is what we're going to do. And I think carry that same energy uh, when I decided to run for mayor. But yeah, it was, I had never worked on a campaign before my first, I was like that kid. I was always interested in like policy, but I was never the kid aside from the White House internship that I worked on campaigns or that interned for politicians or mm. was in student government. Like I was, I've always been more interested in the people 
the institution effects and like the mechanics of the institution itself. And long answer, but yeah, that's why I decided to run for city council, which seems like a whole other world. So looking back on that work, and then how did you make the decision that you're going to make this pivot to doing this statewide poverty work in California? Yeah, so after I, um, after I lost the election, there were so many opportunities that were open, and both were like working government full time to continue that. So I had a lot of conversations with folks in D.C. about joining the administration. I had conversations with, with our governor administration about sort of, even though I still have a role in the administration, it's, it's, not, I may, I, it's not paid. Like I'm not on staff, I'm an advisor. But there was conversation about making me like a, a very senior staff person mm-hmm. um, in, in the administration. But I, but I realized I spent so much time in government, but what was needed was something to push government. Now, I knew just like the federal level, and I was like, you get like two years max to do something before midterms. Um, and California is home. California is a place I love. California, I think, is the best canvas for policy innovation just because of our sort of Democratic House, Democratic Senate, Democratic governor, Democratic population. But yeah, it's really leading on many issues, trailing on a lot of issues. Um, and it just felt like it was a fertile place to really dig deep and think through sort of what would it like to create a model? Because you're not going to end poverty in this country if you can't do it in California. And then I thought that sort of what would be most helpful to the governor and his administration was to create some outside noise, some outside pressure, some mm-hmm. outside opportunities, some outside ideas, while still being in relationship with the administration to really get the ball rolling, to have a consistent focus on this issue. Because California just has a lot going on all the time. So we constantly focus and being a squeaky wheel on this issue for this huge part of our population felt like the right thing to do. Um, and that's sort of where the end poverty in California work came. Cause I spent last year in my role as an advisor and there was so much happening and so much to do, but I'm like one brain, one person. I was like, no, to really make this work, we need an effort and initiative that's inside government and outside government. That's really just focused on nothing else, but being the squeaky wheel right. around the issue of poverty. So I want to yeah I want to dig into that. It's just it's funny as you were talking, I had not put together until this very second the uh, connection points, right? So in terms of what as a you know activist or you know leader or whatever, the moment of truth that comes with not winning an election, and then what do you do? Which you're really reflecting on your actual purpose, right? So I had forgotten to this moment that I ran for and lost the. Uh, race for a state assembly, state legislative seat in California in 2002. And that occasioned all of this reflection around what am I really trying to do? Where am I trying to go? What's the impact I want to have? And that led to the decision to cre- actually, we did a organize a statewide tour with Jesse Jackson around economic and social justice issues. And it really showed Wait, the struggle. I did not know this. I feel like I'm like the Steve Phillips encyclopedia. Well, I had, I had forgotten about it. We just started talking about it. Yes. And so we did the statewide campus tour, including uh, going up to Davis when his car broke down on the side of Highway 80. And then <laughs> between calls me and we circled back to come pick up Jesse on the side of the highway who had his thumb out in terms of acting like he was hitchhiking. But the, 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 the response of these college campuses for this message of economic and social justice showed me that the appetite was still there, but the vehicles weren't. And mm-hmm. so that's what led us to create PowerPack. And we created PowerPack in 2003. And one of the first things we did, and I sent you a little picture of this video we did, was we did house parties around the state around end poverty in California and really trying to lift that whole issue up. 
And so then now you're, you are, you know, nearly 20 years later creating End Poverty California. So tell us about the decision to create it. And then what is this uh, entity and this work that you're doing around End Poverty in California? Well, I, say I love that segue because I think it's important to also mention just the work of so many people that have gone into this moment, whether it's you, whether it's a myriad of anti-poverty organizations in the state, we're lucky to be walking alongside with and on the shoulders of folks who have been doing this work and thinking about this for a long time, just adding a little millennial energy and, 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 and swagger to it. Um, so, so EPIC stands for In Poverty in California. It's really a, a campaign, if you will, or an initiative focused on elevating the issue of poverty to go to the state. My dream is for, like at the federal level, whether you agree or disagree, if you're running, you have to have an answer for Medicare for All. You have to have an answer for Green New Deal. In the same way in California, I want to, you have to answer for poverty. Mm. What, I want poverty to be the issue that animates and drives political discourse in California, particularly with a Senate campaign happening in two years, particularly for, for, for age 24, particularly with a bunch of assembly seats coming open, and particularly mm-hmm. with sort of a, a governor, lieutenant governor seat becoming open in, in, in 2026. So we do that in a couple of ways. Number one is focused, of course, on policy. We released a white paper from the Stanford Center on Poverty and Equality, that's our roadmap that says this is what the state of California can do if it actually wants to do it to end mm-hmm. poverty. Like, and, and it's what the state government can do, right? Because I think mean, oftentimes when government's like, well, I don't have that responsibility, I don't have the authority. No, no, no. With the authority that you have, state assembly, legislature, and governor, this is what you can do to end poverty. If we want to end poverty, this is, this is, this is how we do it. Um, the second thing we're focused on is sort of narrative change. So again, figuring out the storytelling, how do we get people to see that poverty is not an individual failing, but societal one. Mm-hmm. So thinking through culture and public art, um, we're going to do a poverty tour um, to really highlight and, and amplify and show people this is what poverty looks like in the state. We were able to partner with the speaker to get a select committee on poverty established um, that's going to kick off in a couple of months, led by my good friend, assembly member Isaac Bryan. And sort of that will be a vehicle to ha- have assembly members and legislatures thinking through and, and working through and, and having to discuss poverty pretty pretty regularly. I'm talking to the legislative a- analyst office around doing some sort of report or primer on poverty in California so that every legislative staff member has that information and has that intel. Um, and then we also want to go deep in certain cities and counties. So partnering with counties like LA County and cities like in, like in, in cities who are serious about poverty work and thinking through what are the set of pilots and policies we can do at the local level to really get the ball rolling? And then really supporting, uplifting, championing our champions. So people who went to your point earlier, as a politician, if you want to make poverty your issue, you have a friend and ally in us. Mm-hmm. And we'll do everything we can to support you and amplify you and make sure that you're getting the love that you deserve. Because as you said, everyone talks about the middle class. Yeah. Everyone talks about this mythical middle class that actually doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, because so many people in the middle class are literally one paycheck away from poverty and really getting a, a, a consensus around this is a solvable problem and something we actually want to work on in California, something we have to work on in California. Yeah, it reminds me that there's why people thinking these things aren't possible, right? I, mean, I gave a talk to the California Food Bank Association a few years ago, and I was researching that, I realized, and what I posed to, that, to them was that we could end hunger in California by taxing just 131 people, right? So you just tax the state's billionaires and you did a wealth tax 
right? Not even a income tax, but a, you know, a wealth tax. I think I was saying like 2%, that that would then generate the revenue to be able to end hunger. And then what people don't realize, even on the wealth tax things, I keep saying, it's not that you're actually taking money from people, that you're just having them get richer a little slower. Like the average return in the, in the stock market would have passed you know, nearly 100 years is 10%. So just make 8% and we could end hunger within the state. So how, well, two things I question I have. So one is I want to know how, a little bit more about how this has been received by state leaders. But first, can you explain what exactly baby bonds are and how they work? Yeah, so one of our policy prescriptions is, is baby bonds. And let me back up and say part of what we're trying to do is also have a conversation about it's not just ending poverty so people have a bare minimum or just a basic income, which I'm definitely a proponent of, but it's about how do you allow people to build wealth for themselves and their family, things that can be passed on, much like poverty has been passed on. And baby bonds is a way to do that. And it, it's a... Um, the idea is that every child is born and the government invests something in an account for them that accrues interest. And you do it, you can do it universally and do it scaling. So if your parents have a lot of money, you get less in from government. If your parent has no money, you get more in from government. And researchers like Darren Hamilton have shown just doing that can almost end the racial wealth gap in one generation, right? Mm-hmm. Like just like being very smart and targeted and investing a little bit of money on the front end could make it so that kids are 18 they have money, not just for college, but for a down payment, for a house, to start a business, to be able to start adulthood with something to build upon with, with the foundation. And that's one of the sort of key policies we'll be discussing and driving um, in the state. Right now, Senator Skinner um, has a bill that's not quite baby bonds, but it's close. It's a great mm-hmm. first step. And it's about sort of for kids who lost parents due to COVID, mm-hmm. um, given that their, their, their parents are gone that the state should put some money in and, and for foster youth in the, in, in the state should put some money in accounts that accrue interest for them to use. And when they're adulthoods for, for, for big life purchases. Well, and then you mentioned that the, that you'd gotten the, the governor to set aside a billion dollars for an initiative. So what, what is that? Oh, so we said, and during the budget last year, the governor put in a billion dollars for childhood savings accounts, mm-hmm. which are in actuality similar to baby bonds, but different in that mm-hmm. child savings accounts can only be used for college. I can see. only be used to go to school. So it, it, it's helpful with that. But and people are like, why do we need, why do kids need both? I said, well, if all goes well, our kids will have money for college and money for other things too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like if all goes well, and my and the people who ask that question, their kids have money for college, but also will have some support for a car, have support for a down payment, have some support if they want to start a business. Yep. So it's really about how do you make sure we do what we can from a government perspective, not to make equal outcomes, but to have equitable inputs so that everyone's able or better able to reach their full potential. And so how is how is the epic concept, the work? been received by the different political leaders in and across the state? Yeah, I think we've been really blessed to have so much support uh, from our political leaders. I mentioned Speaker Rendon, mm-hmm. who put together a select committee on poverty, on the issue of poverty. The governor has been a, a has, has, has blessed the effort and thinking about ways he can engage and, and be a part and sort of make sure that poverty remains on the agenda for his administration. Uh, we met with dozens of legislatures. They're all excited. They all want to do um, tours and listening sessions and convenings in their district. So we, we've bit off a lot more than we can chew, actually. <laughs> but it's a good thing. And now it's about how to use that momentum and focus it on the issue. And so what's the, what's the work for the rest of the, rest of the year look like? Yeah, the biggest part of, the, of this year will be this um, 
intersection between this poverty tour and the select committee. So making sure we have select committee hearings, making sure those hearings turn to concrete policy, making sure we're taking lawmakers and others and media to see what poverty looks like in the state. That's going to be like the biggest, biggest, biggest thing. And one thing we're doing really interesting is we're convening a bunch of writers and producers and directors to talk about how do they portray mm-hmm. um, folks in poverty on screen and how do you make those portrayals more accurate and build more empathy and, our, and how to make sure we're not reductionistic or um, essentializing when we talk about people in poverty. It'll be interesting to see. And it is, you know, because there's so much work that needs to be done in terms of art and entertainment, how things get portrayed, the pictures that come to mind, right? And when, the, you know, Jesse was running back in the 80s since presidential campaigns, he used to talk about how, you know, the, when the picture of poverty was a black child, it didn't generate the same national, you know, response. It's like when, when Bobby Kennedy went to Appalachia and then started focusing on white people in poverty, that then there was more of a national call. And so you, I think about that. And then you look at like, what's that show that came out? Um, uh, the Maid? Yeah. Right. Right. And so, but they're featuring a white woman as the face of it. I'm conflicted on that question because I feel like, yeah, we do need to be able to cross these barriers and boundaries of implicit bias to be able to touch people to move them to acts. So I don't know. Do you have any reflections on that? Yeah. So that's why um, a big part of our work is on narrative and culture. And that's why we think this pop, I, I wasn't around for Kennedy's poverty tour, but I know it like got people to think about the issue. Mm-hmm. And that's why I want to make sure that we are uplifting, elevating, showcasing, illustrating, getting people to see, you know, this is what poverty looks like. Yeah. We have to do a better job. We, we have to do better. Um, and, and then that's why we're doing that convening with writers and directors and, and et cetera. Um, because I, I think Maid and Stephanie's a great friend. I think Maid has done a great job of showing sort of what, what poverty, that, like the fact that she was a single mother fleeing domestic abuse and she wasn't dumb. She's now a New York Times bestselling author. She was in a terrible circumstance, mm. given by structural poverty. But to your point, she's a white woman. Yeah, We know that women of color, Black women, Latinx women, um, Asian women, aren't afforded those same, that same benefit of the doubt. So how do we portray them on screen yeah. with the same level of nuance as mm-hmm. we did this lady? Or even if we think about the way it intersects, the fact that so many of our young people who are homeless, or so many people that are homeless are gay young people who've been kicked out mm-hmm. their homes or mm-hmm. former foster youth. 50% of all people who are homeless were once foster youth. Um, how do you talk about that and show that so people understand that homelessness starts way earlier in yeah. childhood? Yeah. Or or the fact that trans folks are kind of the, the some, some of the poorest people in our society. Mm-hmm. Less access to jobs, less access to healthcare, less access to economic opportunity. Like how do we really show those stories out of those stories. So I, that's what I'm going to spend a lot of my time on the next couple of years is that piece while still working with my friends who are elected. Mm-hmm. But want to make sure that we're doing a good job on that piece because that feels like it's what's missing. It's that we don't have the right story. Well, it sounds very exciting. I mean, it's funny because, you know, we, you know, talk in text frequently as you're laying this out. I'm like, oh, this is really exciting. I can't wait to dig in all this kind of stuff here. So... As we as we wrap, I just want to ask a little bit about the, what it was like going back to Ebenezer Baptist Church, right? So the the you know it was Dr. King who really put this whole issue around guaranteed income, minimum income on the agenda, and there was you know we, we've been trying to move that that ball forward over these years, right? That his King's last uh, and the you know. But yet another Jesse reference and tying it back to Stanford. When we brought Jesse to Stanford in 1987, it was a speak at Dr. King's 
birthday program. And he talked about King's last birthday and how the last campaign was the, the poor people's campaign, right? Really trying to move that work forward. And in his speech, there was the unfinished business of Dr. Martin Luther King. And the unfinished business was dealing with poverty in this country. And so you had a chance to go speak. Well, <laughs> amusing side stories. I was finishing my book. I texted you about this. I, was, I wanted to see if I could an article about your speech at Ebenezer. And so I'm Googling Tubbs, Ebenezer, King, and all the articles that popped up on Google were about Anna and Anna's book, right? The Three <laughs> Mothers, right? So for folks who don't know, Anna's book is about the mothers of Dr. King and Malcolm X and James Baldwin, right? It's the, the third person. Um, so people should check that out. And that has made it on the bestseller list. But what was it like? How did it come about in terms of you being invited to speak at the, at the church where Dr. King presided? And what was that like? Yeah, over the past couple of years, I've been really blessed to build a relationship with um, Dr. Bernice King, who's become a mentor and, and dear friend. And she's been so supportive of the work of Marriage for Guaranteed Income, so supportive of Guaranteed Income, so excited about this part of her father's legacy being uplifted. We did a speech at the DNC together. We Our conversation, we did a Time 100 talk together on the issue. And two years ago, they gave me the Beloved Community Award. And this year, she said, I would love it if you would come to Ebenezer and just honor my father with some reflections on King's Day. And that was just such a huge honor and one I haven't really sat down to think through and think about, like how I feel about it. But it was incredible to just be at this pulpit. And I think what I appreciate about Ebenezer was that it's a special place, but it's like a regular place. It's like mm. any church. It looks like mm. a church, right? Like there's a pulpit. And staying at that pulpit and thinking about all the sermons that have been preached there. And thinking about all those folks who heard those sermons, folks whose names we'll never know, but who are the real foot soldiers of the movement, who found inspiration and some courage to do amazing things. Um, and the level of activism and organizing that came from this church, this church of like middle-class and poor black folk. Yep. Right? Like, and that was the takeaway for me, like, wow, we really built monuments of, 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 of movement. Like we are really... Like it's, it, yeah, so just speaking of that pulpit and thinking of all the words that came there and thinking about, it was just such an honor to sort of 31 years old to be back there and to give my little speech about what this day means, what this place means and the work to done. It's probably one of the biggest honors that I've had. Like I'm still very much like, wow, I can't believe that happened. Well, I just want to, you know, say it's, it's hard to believe that it's been, uh, 10 years since we had the first conversation. And, um, you know, I just, as I was, what I opened with was very sincere. And I'm just very honored, grateful, appreciative, proud of all that you've done to lift up these issues and live out this purpose and make an impact and really look forward to, you know, what you and this movement's going to do over the next and, 10 years. And let me just say one thing, Steve, you're so humble. Like everything Steve is proud of, and this is not why he's proud, but he's also has had a huge part in helping me think through, find the resources, problem solve, figure out, I think from every crisis, whether it's losing the election or even like eight years ago when I got pulled over for my DUI, you have always been there as like a mentor and someone to say, okay, how do we rebound from this? How do we think about this? And you've always been pushing me to think bigger and more strategically about how to leverage all these things to actually get things done. So very thankful for you and, and, and proud of what we've done together. And I appreciate you. Oh, that's very kind. And, and, and we are not done yet. Okay. It's all the time we have for today. It's 
kind of remarkable reflecting it's um, you know almost two years ago that we had michael on the pod and i can't believe that it's been 10 years that i've been partnering with him um and he's only 31 right so time does march on um you can follow michael on twitter and i encourage you to do so um at michael d tubbs thank you for listening to democracy in color with steve phillips please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. And Democracy in Color is now on Instagram. You can follow us at Democracy in Color. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Onifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, find your purpose and keep the faith. <laughs>